Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church podcast. My name is Chris Taylor, and I'm going to be your host today. Let me tell you, we are so happy that you're listening in today. In fact, if this is your first time listening or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. Today, we're finishing our series where we've been in the book of Matthew, looking at Jesus's authoritative teaching. We've been investigating whether Jesus was just a great teacher or if he was who he said he was, the Son of God. We've read where Jesus has said some pretty crazy things, things that seem to contradict Jewish laws, some things that set a higher bar. But today we're looking at how he made some very bold and specific predictions about the future. Let's listen in to the message today from our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Aren't you glad that Tony Romo finally made it to the Super Bowl? even though he did it in the box. I've been around some really, really, really smart guys. I suspect you have too. Guys who, when they talk, we try to listen. They speak with authority. But around some guys who know just a whole lot about the past. They know people. They know places. They know the things that happen, dates. They... They even know why a lot of times things happen like they did. They're just impressive. They're authorities. And I, I've been around some guys who know a whole lot about the present. People who understand people, understand systems, how things work. And in fact, we've got some guys like that around here at Capital City Christian Church. And when they talk, I listen. And that happens a lot. You know, I've got questions and I just kind of go to these guys and lean on them. You don't have to be smart. You just have to know people who are and be willing to listen to them. But to tell you the truth, I have not been around many guys who are really good about knowing the future. Could you imagine how your life would be different if you could predict the future with perfect accuracy, even just a couple hours, even just a couple of days? What would it be like right now to know absolutely for certain when, place, and show in the next Kentucky Derby? Is your June going to be a little different? Fact is, you know, if I could pick a bracket well, you could almost be a rich man. There's a guy named Warren Buffett. He has his March Madness offer. He does it different ways, sometimes just for his employees, sometimes for others. But he'll offer a million dollars a year for life if you pick a perfect bracket. He's made that offer of variation several times. No winners yet. Nobody. If I knew the future, perhaps I would have, if I would have invested in one of these. If I had invested $1,000 in Apple when it went public in 1980, it would be worth $425,000 today. Wouldn't that be something? If I had invested $1,000 in Microsoft when it went public in 1986, that would be worth $1.7 million today. I didn't pick either one. What if you could pick the next Apple, the next Microsoft, the next technological advancement. What if you could pick right now, for sure, who the two candidates are going to be for the next presidential election, and you knew who was going to win, and you know the margin? What if you could predict what music is going to top the charts 20 years from now? Good luck on that one. What if you could predict with complete accuracy what this church, Capital City, is going to look like in 20 years? Good luck on that one. Now, I know that there are some people around who try to make their living predicting the future. Weather forecasters, they try to predict the future. They get it more right than wrong, getting way better. 
but they can't see too far into the future, and they, they still miss it quite a bit. Financial forecasters, they study trends, they make recommendations on where to put your money, and if they're more right than wrong, you do really well to listen. Still pretty much educated guesses, educated guesses. Preachers sometimes try to predict the future. You ever hear these guys? Constantly trying to tell us when Jesus is going to come back and how it's going to go down. Usually when a preacher starts prophesying about the second coming of Jesus, I try to find a place to hide, right? I, I, I wince. Because so far, with respect to the second coming, they have one thing in common. Every one of them has gotten it wrong every time. And there are always psychics out there trying to predict the future, horoscopes, readings, astrological signs. And there's an appropriate response usually when you hear that. The right response is to chuckle. On the other hand, Jesus, on a few occasions, said things about the future. On at least two occasions, he predicted things with some detail that have already happened. They've already come down. Sometimes he talks about future things that haven't happened yet, but sometimes he predicts things that have already come true. And because he predicted things that have already come true, you wonder whether we ought to take the rest of what he said pretty seriously. Listen, guys, I'm telling you, if Jesus talked the way that the eyewitnesses say he talked, then the stuff he says and the way that he said it should blow your minds. Sometimes he says words that make us squirm. And make us wince. Sometimes he says words that annoy us and frustrate us. Sometimes he says words that if you take them seriously, they'll transform your life. But when you really listen to them, you can't blow them off. Sometimes he said things about the future. That if you really said this stuff, you ought to follow him anywhere. He spoke with mind-bending authority even about the future. Think about it. What would it take to predict the future with accuracy? You'd either have to know the world so well, you'd have to know people so well that you can predict exactly what every person and everything is going to do, right? That's one way. Or you have to have the power to make things go exactly as you say it's going to go. Absolute power over people and absolute power over things. You'd have to be kind of like God, or in some way, you'd have to have weird power over time itself to be able to actually see what's going to happen just like it has already happened. Kind of like Doctor Strange, I guess, in the Marvel Universe. And which of these things do you think explains Jesus' power, his authority to know the future like he did? And if he really does know the future with this kind of authority... We need to listen when he talks. Now, some of us right now are reading a very controversial book by a great preacher down in Atlanta by the name of Andy Stanley. It's called Irresistible. You can see it on screen. You see, at one time, Christianity was nearly irresistible. We just kind of spread throughout the world like an airborne virus. Today, at least in our part of the world, we have become very resistible. We're part of a post-Christian culture. Been there, done that. In fact, our culture is leaning pretty hard and fast towards anti-Christian. We have become resistible, even those of us here right at Capital City. And some of what Andy Stanley is saying is making a lot of us Jesus followers squirm, but I think he's more right than wrong. 
And here's one little piece about Jesus that he thinks we need to talk about more. Two of Jesus' prophecies. I'm going to unpack one of them this morning, and I'm going to lean on Andy Stanley a lot this morning. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to tackle the second. Because if Jesus really said this stuff, and it happened the way that we think it did, it's pretty strong evidence for Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord. Now, I'm going to start by kind of dialing back a couple of chapters in Matthew's story of Jesus. Jesus is in the middle of one of his discussions with some seriously annoyed religious leaders when he says this, we miss it. Or if we do hear it, sometimes we forget we're supposed to wince. This is what he says. He says, I tell you, there's one here who's even greater, greater than the temple. Huh? Have you ever pondered how outrageous, how absurd, how insane, how offensive that would have sounded when Jesus said this thing? Really, Jesus? Are you that full of yourself? That's kind of arrogance on steroids, isn't it? Listen, guys, for the Jews in Jesus' world, no one, nothing is greater than the temple. Now, you may have places that are very special to you, but there is no place as special to you as the temple was to the Jews. It was not only the center of their life with God, it was the center of their world. In fact, they thought it was the center of the world. It was the presence of God on earth. To compare yourself to the temple, much less to call yourself greater than the temple, is pretty much as arrogant and ignorant and insane as you can get. In fact, to them, it would be worthy of death. It was blasphemy. In fact, they were so serious about protecting the honor of the temple that myriads of the Jews would be willing to die for it. I'm not exaggerating. There are a lot of us that love Capital City Christian Church. How many of you would be willing to die for it? I'm not talking about for the kingdom. I hope a lot of us would be willing to die for that. How about for this little cluster of Jesus followers here? Fast forward 10 years. There's this dreadful Roman emperor by the name of Gaius Caligula. Ever heard of Caligula? He was flat out crazy. He decided to put a statue of himself inside the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which was a desecration to the Jews, blasphemy. So when his statue arrived on the coast, the Roman governor went to pick it up. He had about 10,000 soldiers with him. And when they arrived, there were thousands of Jews protesting what was about to happen. Only they did their protesting a little differently than we do ours. Instead of trying to harass the Romans or even trying to defend themselves, they just knelt down, they exposed their necks, and they said, kill us. We would rather be dead than see our temple desecrated. Well, the governor blew them off, headed for Jerusalem. Before he got there, he ran into an even bigger group of protesters. Here's how Josephus, the historian, is a Jewish historian, this is how he describes the scene. He said they threw themselves on their faces. They stretched out their throats. They said they're ready to be slain, and they did this for 40 days. For 40 days. In the meantime, they left the tilling of the ground, even though this was the time in the year when it had to be tilled and seeded. Thus they continued firm in their resolution, and they proposed to themselves to die willingly rather than to see the dedication of the statue in their temple. So the temple's a huge deal to them. It was huge. There was nothing greater than the temple, Jesus. 
By the way, Caligula died before his temple ever desecrated the temple. His statue desecrated the temple. Now, this was not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple had been destroyed nearly six centuries earlier by the Babylonians. It wasn't even the temple that the Jews rebuilt when they got back from their captivity in Babylon. Now, actually, about 20 years before Jesus was born, there was a Jewish king by the name of Herod the Great. This is the same Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Herod started rebuilding the temple. It was absolutely stunning. It's considered one of the greatest architectural achievements in the ancient world. The rebuild that he started took 50 years. This is actually a reconstruction. You can see this reconstruction if you go to Jerusalem. It's called the Holy Land Temple Model, and it's quite accurate to what the temple would have looked like in the time of Jesus. The real temple square covered about 35 acres. Think 35 football fields all covered with cut stone. Remember, they didn't have the machinery that we did. In places, the walls that they had to support this place actually went five or 50 feet underground to bedrock. And they were cutting this stuff without the equipment that we have. In some places, the walls rose 80 feet above ground level, eight stories high. Again, no cranes. Some of the stones that they used were up to 40 feet wide, about as wide as this stage, and they weigh over 100 tons. They had these porches along the outside, these colonnades. They were huge. They had all these incredible gates. Some of the doors in those gates were about 45 feet high. The door was higher than this room. Covered with gold and silver, there was gold plating everywhere. There were gold spikes on the roofs, gold spikes to keep the birds from landing and messing up the place. All of this surrounding this spectacularly beautiful temple that rose in the center of the whole thing. The reports were that there was so much white stone and there was so much gold that the reflection from the sun could be so dazzling on a bright day that you couldn't even look at the place from a distance. You're greater than this, Jesus? really? One afternoon as Jesus and his guys are exiting the temple, one of his disciples looks back and says, look at it, Jesus, look at it. Dazzling. Indescribably big and incomparably beautiful. I mean, they had seen it dozens of times, hundreds of times maybe by this time, and it still took their breath away. You ever been to a place like that? And what Jesus said next ought to make you lean in pretty hard. Because I don't care whether you're a Jesus follower or not. What he said next, if you really said this, it's going to blow your socks off. Jesus says, see these buildings? All these great stones? Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. Every one of these stones is going to be thrown down. Not fall down. It's going to be thrown down. Jesus looks at him and says, this whole thing? It's a tear down, Right? And they're stupefied. And what did he say? Does he really mean it? Every stone thrown down, dragged to the edge of that plaza and thrown into the valley below? I mean, even a catastrophic earthquake couldn't do something like that. This is with cut stone. These weren't jagged stones just dangling there precipitously. Some of the stones actually weighed as much as 500 tons. Take a massive army 
Perhaps only one army in the world that could pull that off, the Roman army. And they're not going to attack the temple. It was a Roman vassal, Herod, that built the thing with their permission. And the Romans protected the, the temples of their subjects. That's how they kept people passive. What did you say, Jesus? So later that day, by the way, this is recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them. And what they record is one of the most remarkable, verifiable prophecies given by any person, anywhere, anytime. You need to think about it. What if it went exactly as they recorded? All these guys are getting it either from eyewitnesses or they were eyewitnesses. And all of these guys are willing to go to their deaths, refusing to back down from what they tell us Jesus said. Anyway, later on that day, they're sitting with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been there, Mount of Olives is gorgeous. It's right across a valley from the temple, right up above them. Incredible view. The suspense is killing them. You serious, Jesus? Every stone thrown down? Wouldn't that be kind of like the end of the world as we know it? And they said, when, Jesus? When's that going to happen? When, Jesus? And what's amazing is they actually believed him. Jesus had shown so much power and so much authority that they actually believed him. Now, if you look at it carefully, Jesus was actually asked three questions. Number one, when is the temple going to get thrown down? That's one. Number two, when is the end going to be? And number three, when are you coming back? Three questions. Now, they probably thought it was all the same question. They probably thought all those things were linked. They'd happen at the same time. But if you listen carefully to Jesus' answers, he tells us they are not. He's going to tell us the temple is going to be destroyed while some of you guys are still alive. It's already happened for us. As far as the fact that I'm coming back and when the end of the world is going to be, it's going to happen and you need to be ready, but I'm not going to tell you when. Now I'm going to draw most of this next part from Luke's gospel because Luke is the most explicit. Here's what Jesus goes on to say. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that the time of its destruction has arrived. Then those who are in Judea, the greater area, need to flee to the hills. Those who are in Jerusalem must try to get out. Those who are in the country should not try to get in. Now, if you've read the Bible a lot, you may have read those words before, but the chances are you thought they were talking about the end of time something that hasn't happened yet. In fact, that may be what some preacher has told you. But listen, Jesus isn't talking about something that is going to happen someday, somewhere. He's predicting something that some of his disciples sitting there are going to see. It's going to happen in their lifetime. About 40 years later, there's a Roman general by the name of Vespasian. Later on, he's going to become the emperor of Rome. He went to Israel to quell what is called the Jewish revolt. The Jewish war is what happens when he gets there. That war had been going on for four years when he finally trapped thousands of the Jewish rebels inside of Jerusalem. It was actually during one of their religious festivals. Tens of thousands of Jews from around the world would try to go to Jerusalem to be in the temple for their holy days. 
At first, the Roman commanders tried to keep the Jews from entering Jerusalem. And then Vespasian told his guys to let him in. In fact, they actually escorted the pilgrims up into the city. For days, they escorted the pilgrims in. And once the masses were inside, Vespasian seals it off. Brilliant. Cruel. All the extra mouths to feed. And then he cuts off the food and the supplies. And by the time his legions finally broke through the walls, people were literally starving to death. You remember Jesus' words almost 40 years before it happened? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, you'll know that the time of destruction has come. If you're in Judea, flee to the hills. If you're in Jerusalem, get out. If you're in the country, don't come in. No kidding. In fact, there's strong historical evidence that when Vespasian started marching against Jerusalem and surrounding the city, a lot of the Christians did exactly what Jesus had told them to do. Historians tell us that they traveled northeast to a place called Pella in Jordan, running away from a battle as Jesus told them to, that they were not going to win. Proved to be one more reason the Jews despised the Christians, because they had fled in that time of battle. Jesus keeps going. He says how terrible it's going to be for pregnant women, for nursing mothers in those days. There's going to be a disaster in the land and great anger against this people, and they're going to be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. No kidding. On perhaps August the 6th, 70 AD, the Romans broke through. Siege had taken so long that when the Roman soldiers finally broke through, they were merciless. Thousands upon thousands of the Jews were butchered. Tens of thousands. In fact, Josephus, the historian, tells us that hundreds of thousands were sold into slavery. Here's what Josephus says. He says, the slaughter inside was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy, they were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The legionnaires had to clamber over the heaps of the dead to carry on their work of extermination. And those who were spared were not spared out of mercy, but out of greed. Survivors, including children, were sold to slavers who waited impatiently for their payday. In fact, I'm telling you guys, if you go to Rome today, right next to the Colosseum in the Roman Forum, you'll see Titus Arch. That's what it looks like. It's an amazing thing. Carved into this side of the arch is this picture. Images of the Jews who were dragged off to Rome as slaves. A couple of years ago, Julie and I got to stand there and look at that thing. It'll blow your socks off. Remember what Jesus predicted? terrible it's going to be for those who are pregnant, for those who are nursing in those days, because there's going to be a great disaster in the land and a great anger against this people. They're going to be killed by the sword or sent away as slaves. No kidding. I'm telling you guys, this prophecy is so detailed and so striking that some scholars who refuse to accept Jesus as Lord use this prophecy as a proof that Matthew and Mark, and especially Luke, could not have been written before the Jewish war. I mean, who could prophesy something so unexpected with this kind of detail unless they're actually God or something? 
Gospels couldn't have been written by eyewitnesses. These words had to have been invented by later Christians and projected back on the lips of Jesus. In fact, right today, this is what you're going to hear in a lot of our universities. No one could prophesy something this extraordinary, this detailed, before it happened. Who does he think he is? God? I think later Jesus followers had to have made this stuff up. They had to have projected it back onto the lips of Jesus. Just legend. They just made up what they think Jesus could have said or would have said. And so a whole lot of the experts that you're going to hear with their exposés of Jesus on TV, that's the kind of thing they're going to tell you. Matthew, Mark, Luke couldn't have been written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They couldn't have been written before the Jewish war. Because Jesus couldn't really predict the future this accurately, could he? Could he? Now, guys, there are a boatload of issues with those hypotheses. If you want to dig deeper, I'd be glad to recommend a couple of books to you. In fact, I just finished this one, The Case for Jesus by Brant Pitra. It's an amazing little book. It's really good. There are others. And I think I understand what these scholars are trying to do. If these gospels really are based on eyewitness testimony, if it's really true that Jesus describes with extraordinary detail things that happened 40 years later, who is he? What are you going to do with the rest of the stuff that he says? And I haven't even gotten to the most important piece yet. You know, where every throne or stone is going to be thrown down. Temple was one of the places, the temple complex was one of the places in Jerusalem where the rebels made their last stand. Huge walls, very defensible, massive, strong layers of walls. Priests stood up on the top, praying their prayers, asking for a miracle. Sometime during the battle, someone set fire to the interior and everything that was flammable burned. And then they broke through. The rebels were slaughtered. The priests were slaughtered. Everything that had value was plundered. You saw some of that plunder in Titus Arch. All of that stuff was normal back then. What happened next is not normal. Vespasian wasn't there. He was the general who started that battle, but he was called back to Rome. His son Titus, the one for whom the arch is named, he's the one who took over the Roman legions. Titus ordered that every stone used in building the temple itself be thrown down into the courtyard or into the valley on the edge of the courtyard. Go figure. Remember what Jesus said? See all these great stones? Not one stone here is going to be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Did you know that some of those stones are still there 2,000 years later? Now, when Jesus was saying these things, what do you think was his attitude? Do you think he said these things smugly? Right before these things, Matthew and Luke tell us Jesus cried. The Son of God wept because he knew what was coming. Here it is from Matthew. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and the stones and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you just wouldn't let me. And now your house is abandoned and desolate. He could see what was coming. It's even more striking in the Gospel of Luke. Look at these words. As Jesus came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, he began to cry. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But it's too late now. 
peace is hidden from your eyes. He keeps going. Before long, your enemies are going to build ramparts against your walls and encircle you. No kidding. They're going to close in on you from every side. And they did that. They'll crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you didn't recognize it when God visited you. Because you didn't recognize me. Listen, guys, if Matthew and Mark and Luke had been written after the Jewish war, after the destruction of the temple, if Christians had just made this stuff up and projected it back on the lips of Jesus, I can guarantee you they'd have added something like this. And it all happened just as Jesus said it would. That you'd expect them to say. They would have said it. They'd said that kind of stuff all the time. And how could they resist pointing out something so extraordinary. And sometimes they would say, Jesus said something and we didn't get it then, but later on we got it. Why didn't they say it on this time? Listen, they couldn't have resisted and I told you so. So why didn't they give us and I told you so? It's pretty easy. But you need to lean in and listen. In fact, it's one of the reasons we bend our knees to Jesus as our Lord. Because when the gospel of Matthew was written, when the gospel of Mark was written, when the gospel of Luke was written, the temple was still there. There's no I told you so because it hadn't happened yet. It was about to. So what if it actually happened just like these eyewitnesses said it did? What if Jesus actually did predict with an amazing amount of detail the destruction of the temple that was going to happen 40 years later? Do you think it'd be worth listening to other things he had to say? And do you think he was right when he said something greater than the temple is here? By the way, this is not the most spectacular prophecy of Jesus. Several times he predicted to his disciples I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, and I'm going to be killed. And then he predicted, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And listen, guys, if a guy can predict his resurrection and pull it off, you better follow that guy. Right after Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, he says a whole lot more about what's going to happen in the future, in our days, our time. And he says some things about what's going to happen at the end of time. He says a lot about how difficult it's going to be to live as Jesus' followers in a world that is still at war with its God. He tells us to hang tough. He tells us to be ready because he is going to come back. And when he does come back, those who have followed him are going to win and those who have not are going to lose going to happen some days. And it's all going to hinge. It's all going to hinge on what we do with Jesus today. So it's your call. Is Jesus the most dangerous liar who ever lived? Is he the most dangerous lunatic who ever lived? Or is he Lord, the Messiah? our Savior, our God. Those are your options. He won't be ignored. 
To marginalize him, to do life as if he doesn't matter or doesn't exist, is to deny him. He came to offer us life, real life. Follow me and you're going to have life to the fullest, he said. You're going to have a fearless life. You're going to have an abundant life. You're going to have an eternal life, he said. Don't just take a leap of faith. Follow him because he has proven himself to be faith worthy. He's given us more than enough, if we want, to bend our knees to Jesus as Lord. Don't push back on him. Let him do for you. Let him do to you what he came to do.